And welcome back to part two of the Gen X Playback Show, your favorite show about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are the Brothers High. I'm Scott. And I'm Sean. And you are listening to the famous Millie Vanilli, Girl You Know It's True, from 1989. That was number 36 in our Top 40 countdown from February 1st, 1989. So now, Sean, we are getting ready to roll into the Top 20. And what were your thoughts so far about, about this particular countdown? A little different than the one we did from 1987 but as i think as you said at the end of part one that you're 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 kind of starting to feel your groove now as far as recognizing some of the songs that are out there i was amazed at how i did not know the bottom half of the top 40 i mean i you know for the most part i I listen to a lot of music and i'm aware of a lot of things and and even you know with with some of the what was it con can yeah i mean I, that, I beg that, your pardon, that that one caught me off guard i mean i, I kind of knew it but the fact that i was had no clue as to the name surprised me however as we're kind of like gaining some some momentum here as we're climbing up the charts it's it's interesting how i know these songs sure. and you know that it's still the mtv era you know we're you know and i'm picturing videos as we're going up the charts well, as we start the, the second half, as we go to number 20 in our countdown, what was one of the things that you remember about a lot of music soundtracks when you would hear particular songs is you would recognize voices and maybe people that were part of a famous group or maybe uh, would sing a solo song for an, a movie soundtrack. Or you would take two people and put them together from like two famous people and put them together to do a song for a soundtrack. Well, this is our song from number 20, and that's exactly what was done. Two famous singers from two very, you know, two rock bands are brought together to sing this very loving ballad. Let's see if you can remember this. I mean, even the movie. Is it that we've been together much too long? So, so it's like Mike Reno. You're close. Oh. You're a lot closer than you think. Is that Ann Wilson? That is Ann Wilson. So I was thinking that I guess they did the song in Footloose. That's the most paradise. Yeah. Oh, I totally know this song. So give me a clue with the guy. Just a clue. You know this. The group that he's a part of. Oh, is it is it Robin Zander? It is Robin yeah, Zander. Yeah, all right, all right. As I as I'm thinking, Robin about Zander it. from yeah, Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick. Yeah. Now, how about the movie? Any any thought? Any clues about the movie? It had Mel Gibson in it. Kurt Russell. Oh, this was uh, Tango and Cash. No, no, it was. This was a love a love story. Who, who was in at the end? It was Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. Oh, I was thinking Tango Cash was still alone. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Mm, not sure. Michelle Pfeiffer was also Tequila Sunrise. Tequila Sunrise. Yes. Yeah. So this okay. was one of the uh, one of the main songs in that. But it's a good song. Uh, like I said, the, in 1989, uh, we were definitely uh, all about the ballads. Mm-hmm. You would really. I talked about this with, with my kids, particularly my oldest one, Gavin, and I, I played for him, I think it was in the summer, I played him like the top 10 from the summer of 89. 
And I think six of the 10, they were all like songs like this, like really slow love ballads. And I said, yeah, we were all about that back in 1989. And a little bit different, like I said, from yours in, in 87. Your your your, sound, your top 40 was a lot more upbeat mm-hmm. oh, than, yeah. than what this one is. But still, this this brings back a lot of, a lot of good memories for me. So number 19 is one of those little kind of hidden gems, particularly from the New Jack Swing. Uh, one hit wonder from, from a little band of young guys. Certainly has that Ralph Tresvant sound, doesn't he? I I know the song, right? One hit wonder, you say? One hit wonder. I mean, they got the the title there is Dial My Heart. Mm-hmm. The name of the group is The Boys. Yes, sure. And The Boys were part of the Motown label. Okay. This is after Motown had moved out to L.A. But Motown was very much alive and kicking at this point. And they were you know, one of the last hit makers for, for the Motown label, especially in the late 80s. A lot of people had moved on to, to other, whether it was EMI or... Uh, MCA or Sony or Geffen, you know, there were a lot of there were a lot of album labels out there that Motown wasn't didn't have quite the clout that it did, but the Boys were were one of the last you know hit makers for them in the eighties. Yep, I remember the Boys. So that was number nineteen in our top forty list from February first, nineteen eighty nine. This number eighteen song was on its way up, and again signature song for this particular band and in about six months there isn't going to be a bigger band in the world we're talking the summer of 1989 yeah of course this is new kids on the block with the right stuff i I would have been stunned had they not been in the countdown you know it's it's funny because i saw them in concert did you know that you saw them recently no no Oh, like back in the day? In 1988? Yeah, you, you saw them during that, when the Cover Girl, uh, s- the album that they had, Cover Girl, right? I saw them at the York Fair, and they, because you know, anybody that lives in our area, in the, in the Lancaster, York area, uh, the York Fair is one of the biggest state fairs in the state of Pennsylvania, and I credit them because they would, they were very kind of cutting edge on some of the music that they would bring in. So fast forward to 1988, and my friends and I would always go to the York Fair, and we had a chance to go see the concert that was there, and it was it was pretty full. And here it was, New Kids on the Block. And you're right, they hadn't done anything off of the new album. It was the it was the stuff that they ended up re-releasing mm-hmm. later in 1989. And I was like, where have I heard this before? And here was that concert at the York Fairgrounds that I saw with Dan Zare and Scott Sangry. 
and that was uh, the summer of 1988. Were they the headlining act? No, they were one of the headliners. Usually played towards the end of the week. These guys were like, I'm gonna say, what night did we go? I think it was like a Tuesday night. Okay. So they were not the very beginning, but they were kind of like it, the the bands got progressively bigger. So you could tell that these guys were kind of on their way up the track. And you saw the entire concert? I don't think so. No, I think we left early uh, because I don't remember doing, seeing them do any kind of an encore. Okay. And I couldn't tell you any of the songs. I didn't recognize who they were. There were a lot of screaming girls there. It wasn't as full as when I was just there a couple of years ago to see Sticks on REO Speedwagon. It was probably about, I don't know, maybe three, 4,000 people there. But I remember them up there, and they're they're doing their thing like just like you would see on MTV later on. And um, what like, was your impression? Did, I mean, at the time, did you think, "Hey, I just saw the the next big thing"? I don't think I was impressed because, you know, as a guy, I was seeing the girls like screaming, and mm-hmm. and I thought, ah, these you know who are these guys? You know, they bunch of bunch of pretty boys. Um, and I ended up when they came out with with Hanging Tough, the album, which I ended up liking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and thought they were they were pretty cool, but that, I just remember them being at the York Fair, and I did not know that they were there in it was I believe it was September of 1988. Okay, is when they were there. So, um, but yeah, the right stuff is the the song that got everything going for New Kids on the Block. And like I said, you're in February 1989. In six months, New Kids on the Block is everywhere, and they are probably the biggest. Uh, especially boy band, but they were probably the biggest act touring act in the U S at that point in that summer. Because one thing about their manager, Maurice Starr is mm-hmm. he worked them hard. Right. And, and those, those guys were on tour constantly. And of course the, um, you know, Maurice Starr created new edition. Mm-hmm. And so new kids on the block were going to be the white version of new edition. And, you know, you know, he saw how successful new edition was with the, you know, the, the black female audience. And he thought, Hey, there's, a lot of white girls out there that'd be into this as well. And, you know, he kind of used the same formula and it's kind of amazing how both bands have been as successful over the years as what they have been. Yeah. And I guess he, he had made the comment before that is one big regret when new, when new edition was getting started and that he began with new kids on the block is the merchandise. Think about all the new kids on the block merchandising that happened in 1989 yeah, those guys are set for life because of everything that was sold from lunchboxes to dolls. To, oh, he let them keep some of the money? Uh, I'm sure they got some of it. Okay. I mean, those guys, they don't have to work. Uh, you know, Danny Wood is secluded down in Florida somewhere that, uh, you know, he doesn't have to work. He's, those guys made enough money to retire on. And, uh, but it, this was, this was the, this was the song off the album that basically got everything started. But for, was that for the new first kids. release, though, off the album? It it was no. Please don't go, girl. Was a top ten hit, I believe. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it was. Yeah, that was the song that came out. Because Joey the fall. sang that one. Joey sang that one. But this was the song that that made him huge. Mm-hmm. In, in my and opinion. this was the song that you could not get away from it on MTV. That's correct. Yeah, it was everywhere. They're driving around that big convertible. Yep. And, yep. Joey driving for the very first time in the video and almost running everybody over. Is that true? That is a true story, yeah. Driving? That was in Papa video. So that was our number 18 song, You Got It, The Right Stuff by New Kids on the Block. The album is Hanging Tough. Uh, Number 17, a song and an album 
that I really grew to appreciate as I got older. Of course, this is one of the greatest bands ever in U2. I mean, I know we talk about, um, you know, Van Halen a lot, but I've seen U2 a lot more than I've seen Van Halen. Sure. And because they're still the original guys, you know, are still playing. But Angel Harlem, when they came out with this, it was a little bit different. It was, and I think that's probably why it took me so long to, to appreciate how good it was. Yeah, and at, at first I was unsure about it. Well, I should say, when they did the whole rattle and hum, I was a little unsure about it because it was such a departure from very much a British sound, or an Irish sound. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and then they kind of had this, very much an American sound. They and really dug into R&B and blues music. They did. Now, when they came out with this song, it, this was what kind of really swayed me. And I was I was like, okay, I'm, I'm totally on board with this. Yeah, the... To your point, and I was kind of thinking the same thing, is take me back to 1989, and this album comes about, and it was nothing of what I expected to hear coming from U2. So that's why I said it really took me a while to appreciate how good it was. Yeah. And that these guys are not just great Irish musicians or great rock musicians, that these guys are really good at playing music. And the fact that I I think the song that probably swayed me was the duet they did with BB King when Love, Love Comes, Comes to Town. Town. I yeah. really like that. That and and this was a song that I had to circle back to because I was kind of like, it's not you two to me, but obviously I'm an idiot because it's a great song and and it's very much a U2 so So, you know how I love how music of this era takes you back to a moment and for me when I hear this song I'm immediately transported to my dorm in Heston Kansas and I remember walking down the hallway to go uh, you know we we had the 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 showers at the end of the hallway and I'm carrying my stuff I'm ready to to go in and I hear this song coming from one of the uh, my the the neighboring rooms playing and I just kind of remember like almost like dancing a little bit as I was walking to go into the bathroom and take a shower. And it's like, this song just takes me right back to being in college and in the dorm. Right. Okay. That was our number 17 song, Angel of Harlem by U2. And the name of the album is Rattle and Hum. They even had a concert movie that came out. They did. That uh, came out at the same time. So check it out. It's it's definitely something, if, if you haven't listened to Rattle and Hum in a long time, go back to it and listen to it and appreciate it all over again. Number 16. Definitely a one-hit wonder. And this song was played all over the radio. Yep, this is Edie Brickell at Brickell and the New Bohemians. Yes. I'm not aware of too many things. I know what I know. If and then know she ended up marrying Paul Summit, right? They're still married. Okay. So this is very much what was kind of happening at the college that I was going to. This this song was very popular. It has that kind of college radio kind of, sound. Kind of that free hippie. Yep. yep. That, there was definitely that type of faction that was going on in 1988 when the song would have been released. Yes. There was there were artists out there that 
you know, the summer before the Grateful Dead had come out with Touch of Grey. So it was kind of like, you know, people were starting to embrace elements of the past. And I think in the early to mid-80s, we were definitely embracing of like earlier times, like the 50s. You know, we're, we were really like Back to the Future is all about 1955. Mm-hmm. Now you're starting to get toward, now you're starting to see movies come out about Vietnam. You're starting to see that kind of that late 60s, early 70s kind of culture. And it's becoming more and more popular. Like in the movie, The Lost Boys. And they go into the, the abandoned hotel. And they got this big, giant Jim Morrison poster. Right. So it's kind of like that hippie uh, culture sure. w- was definitely a thing. And that's, for those of you out there who remember the video, I mean, that's kind of what Edie Brickhill was, was. That was the vibe she's putting off. She's kind of dressed with a hippie vibe. And she's kind of like, kind of swaying back and forth to the rhythm. And you could have almost seen... Joan Baez or, or or somebody back you know back in the early days doing the same thing. Well, I think the name of the album kind of says it all it, it, about the fact that they call themselves the New Bohemians. But okay. the name of the album is "Shooting Rubber Bands at the Stars." <laughs> yeah, I totally forgot yeah. that. Yeah, what are you talking about, you hippie? Yeah, no, I'm just I'm kidding. It was, a, it's a great song, and I remember a lot of uh, a lot of my friends that you know, my group, the, the group of friends, the girls really love this song mm-hmm. and I just remember them dancing to it What I Am Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians I believe they hailed from uh, the Dallas Texas area yeah uh, so. no idea alright number 15 is another follow up hit song from a major hit by a group and this one ended up going into the top 10 also now we're getting kind of into that dance dance music again I believe this might be the Information Society. You got it. Ding, ding, ding. I, I was into all this music at the time. So I'm still, I mean, you know, as we said in the, in the previous episode, you know, two years seems to have made a big difference. But as we're getting more popular in the charts here, it's really still hitting the sweet spot for what I was into. Yeah, absolutely. Remember the lead singers to where Roller Skates... When he would sing a concert, I remember his hair. Yeah, because he had the hair with the rubber bands in it, and it was all different colors. Yeah, they were originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and everybody's like, "Oh, you know, oh, the the, the Prince Minneapolis sound," and they were anything but. <laughs> right, they were they were into Star Trek, and they were you know they were tech, techies. Sure, and the music certainly reflected that. And for the, that time period, big time stuff. Mm-hmm. Walking away from the Information Society off of their debut album, Information Society. And, of course, we are doing the top February, the top 40 from February 1st, 1989. Well, let's, Sean, let's go to number 14. And now we're getting into a, an artist who had a monster debut album. And, again, you're starting to see a little bit of this where uh, whether it is coming off of the hit song or it's coming off of the big debut album. Well, this guy had several hits on the on his debut, and this is the first single off of the follow-up, and this is my favorite song by this artist. She wants to dance, 
Well, I don't have, have to come up with the title of the song. Rick Astley gives it to me right away. Come on, who doesn't love Rick Astley? I, I, I'm a big Rick Astley fan. Sean knows this story. So my part-time job, my senior year in high school, I worked at a sporting goods store. And I, I worked with these two brothers that fought constantly. And they were originally from, I believe it was Switzerland or Sweden. Uh, but their names were Olivier and Laurent. And they used to fight. So the one night, I'm working with Laurent. And Laurent was this easygoing, kind of a lovable, goofy guy who went to college for like 12 years. And we're working together, and he was in charge since he had been there longer. And he turns to me and he goes, in his uh, kind of French-Canadian accent, Hey, Scott, do you like Rick Astley? (laughs) Why, sure I do, Laurent. And we jammed to this the whole night. There you go. I'm glad Rick Astley has made a bit of a comeback. Yes. You know, with that whole little, you know, internet spoof where they do the Rick Rowland to to his video. I, I, I think he has put him back into the conversation again. You know, you're right. Because sometimes, as we've talked about before, where the public kind of turns their back on a certain artist and for no fault of their own. Other than maybe being popular. I mean, Rick Astley was hugely popular in 1988, 1989. And we call it the Phil Collins syndrome or the BG syndrome, where they become so popular that the public is just like, we're we're done with you. And it's like, you're like, hey, what happened to my career? And and it circles back. It takes time. But Mm -hmm. eventually, the public will come back and appreciate them for what they actually were. Well, when you, you... Right here, I mean, it's a hit. I mean, it's not his biggest hit, but it's certainly a hit. And there was there were some people at the time that made it a hit that, that certainly liked the song. So I think if you do give things time, those people, as they mature and get older, they, you know, then they it, it's no longer the stigma of liking that artist. It's like, hey, look, these I have happy memories with that song. Yeah, and Rick Astley himself as an artist, when it rolled into the 90s, did, did take a turn musically. Yeah, he went for a more soulful sound. He wasn't looking to get on the dance charts. Mm-hmm. So he changed his sound. And, and I don't know if the people, uh, maybe his fans felt uh, rejected or or they just didn't go along with him. Although the album that he came out with in 1991 uh, was, was also very popular. It just didn't hit the heights that he did uh, in the, you know, 1987, 1988, which happens to an artist. Well, I also, you know, heard Rick Astley talk about that that time when he was on that incredible run it he was he was ready to get off the roller coaster it it was getting you know too insane it was wearing him out and of course a pop star usually has a very short shelf life right so the record companies are going to just bleed you to death yeah and that's what he said was happening to him and he he kind of rebelled and i think that while some might have looked at it as like a career suicide for him he probably said okay i'm going to be i don't need to need this anymore i'm going to be very artistic and I'm kind of going to going to pull the plug on it myself. Sure. And that was uh, our number 14 song, Rick Astley, She Wants to Dance With Me. The name of the album is Hold Me in Your Arms. You go from a shooting, you know, you talk about the shooting star artist, the pop star artist. Our number 13 artist is Anything But had, had a long and illustrious career up to this point. And this is one of my favorite songs that he ever did.
Steve Winwood off of the Roll With It album, which is my favorite Steve Winwood album. I, as much as I love the album that he had before, I think it was Valerie was the uh, highlight was on that one. Yeah, right. But Roll With It, he went from kind of away from a synth sound to a little bit more of a of a brassy blues okay. sound. It, it Roll With It has got the horn section behind it. This does too. And I love this song. I, if I had to pick my favorite Steve Winwood song, this would be it. Well, as as I'm older, I can, you know, appreciate the quality of his voice. Where I, I really liked it at the time. You know, now that some of the artists that I might have thought were great. I listen to them now, and I'm not impressed by their voices. But I listen to Steve Winwood. Um, I like him more today than I did back then, and I liked him back then. Yeah. And I remember um, Alan Hunter from uh, Sirius XM made the comment, and, and I couldn't agree more. And that's why I wanted to repeat it: is he said that for a guy to make quality, popular music. Listen to his lyrics sometime. He's got some very deep lyrics in these songs. And even though it's got kind of a groove that you can bop along to it, listen to the lyrics of this song. And, you know, it's, it's a guy who's putting a lot of thought into his music. And Steve Winwood, like I said, at this point he's about 40 years old. When this album comes out, he'd been around since his teens with Spencer Davis and then went to Blind Faith and Traffic mm-hmm. and then was a highly sought-after session player starts to get back into the solo scene in the early 80s and then by 1985 he's got three albums from 1985 to 89 that are absolutely huge and this is the time period that I remember like the most Mm -hmm. yeah no I I would agree with that Steve Winwood you know uh, one of my he was my one of my comeback artists and it's it's great that he was able to completely have a career much older in life yeah I mean he he had a career very young as you talk about, like in the late '60s, early '70s, very young, it goes away, then comes back, middle age, uh, you know, and is just humongous. Which I, I'm, I'm glad we got to experience that. Sure, that was number thirteen. Steve Winwood holding on. The album is "Roll with It." Our number twelve artist is someone who had been pretty constant through the decade in the 1980s. Although in the beginning, when you first heard her on the airwaves, and then by the end of the decade, you may have thought about her a little bit differently, but she was kind of somebody that grew up right in front of our eyes. And this is my favorite song by this particular artist. have this in a previous episode yes so she needs to it is she needs yeah. to yeah. you know I said about growing up before our eyes when she came onto the scene with you know morning train nine to five well she had the uh, the James Bond theme for your eyes only 
But she was kind of marketed as the girl next door. Yeah. And then in, in the mid-80s, she w- does a lot of work with Prince. So this is like the Bally's commercial. This is the Bally's commercial. Yeah. Um, so Bally's, we had mentioned this before in a previous episode, Bally's Fitness was sort of the planet fitness of its day. where And they hired all these celebrity spokespeople to promote the gyms. They had this thing called a 30-minute workout. And there were a couple of people that stood out to me from the music industry that were, you know, promoting it. One was Glenn Fry, and the other one was Sheena Easton. And Sheena Easton, like I said, in the early 80s, was the girl next door. She works with Prince. Kind of has that raunchy album that was popular, you know. Uh, Sugar Walls was was a popular song. It was. Uh, But fast forward to this. And the music video, I I kind of remember seeing it for the very first time. And I think my jaw was just dropped the entire time. She's unbelievably stunning in this video. It, and she goes from, like I said, kind of the young girl next door. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden she's this gorgeous woman. And she's obviously going to Bally's. And the, uh, you know, the outfit changes in the video. It's it, There's weightlifters in the video and bodybuilders so it's definitely has an angle towards the, the physical nature and she's up there performing in a dance club and looks absolutely stunning which is you know we talked about in that episode that's kind of what was happening at the time with uh you know going to the gym was a big thing and sure you always had kind of the the local rundown average joe's was a big thing but then you started to get these the ballets which was a high-class version of uh, Planet Fitness. Yeah, this is, you know, those types of gyms, you would pay, you know, $100 a month. Lots of Nautilus machines. And there was, it was about being there and being seen. And, uh, you know, we try to replicate that at our average Jans uh, (laughs) club. and it, you know it was happening for for a period of time. But Average Jan, who is the <laughs> owner, the Jan Weaver, the longtime owner of Formula Fitness, who got dubbed Average Jan. <laughs> <laughs> we came up with that on our own. after so. the dodgeball movie. <laughs> so Jan, uh, if you're listening, uh, all about love. That's right, we love you. All right, so that was our number twelve song, "The Lover in Me" uh, by Sheena Easton, and that was off of her "The Lover in Me" album. Number eleven is going to be strikingly similar, Sean, okay. to what we just listened to. Hello, it's me again. Don't you know it's hard to keep a good woman down? But then again, maybe that could be fun. Do Naughty Girls Need Love too, Scott? I think, uh, or maybe... Samantha Fox! Well, now I know exactly, I don't have to worry about saying who the singer is, because there's Samantha Fox, or as, as they would say, Samantha Fox! You know... Samantha when I was in my days as a water delivery guy, I had to train people. And Q102 in Philadelphia at 12 o'clock used to play a dance uh, dance show. Oh, what was the fitness instructor's name? I used to deliver to her house. I can't remember her name, but she used to host this and she'd play all this up-tempo energy okay. music. So the guy that's sitting next to me, his name's Rich, and I'm training him how to deliver water. And it's 12 o'clock, and I flip this on, and it goes, Samantha Fox. And we just roared. That became like the running gag between us. You know, he'd be like, what time is it? What time is it? You know, and 
we would go, we got to hear Samantha Fox. And that was, you couldn't say just Samantha Fox. You had to say it with the stutter. Wasn't, isn't she working with full force? This is with full force. Yeah. Yeah, And so she she changes her sound. I mean, you know, she has, what what was the big hit? I I won Touch Me. Touch Me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, she kind of. That was on your 87 list. Right. And then so. She, you know, kind of goes away. Looks like she's going to be a flash in the pan, and and then she comes back with full force, and kind of has, a, a, as you can hear, this dance beat. Yeah, and and like I said, this is this is the time period where dance clubs are becoming a thing, and for somebody, an artist like Samantha Fox, to to work with a, you know, R and B, New Jack Swing art, you know, creators. Now all of a sudden she's played all over the dance clubs. She's now on Club MTV. She's she's part of this genre now that is kind of an important part of the end of this decade. Sure. Yeah, and and the sound that we're hearing, the fact that it's it's Scott says it's very similar to the previous song, in a lot of ways, you could almost argue that this is kind of the sound of nineteen eighty nine. It is, yeah, I would agree with that. So that was I Want to Have Some Fun by Samantha Fox uh, from the same title, I Want to Have Some Fun album. Let's roll into the top 10. Now we finally made it to the top 10 in a very, very, probably one of the most recognizable artists of the decade of the 1980s. Going strong at this point. Can you have any countdown during the Gen X era? (laughs) Where Phil Collins is not on the list. I, I don't know. It seems to be that way. You're At right. At least in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody would have predicted superstardom when he was the drummer for Genesis. But yet, if you look back at his sheer volume of work in our great performers of the 70s, you know, I had mentioned Elton John. Mm-hmm. I think part of what held him back in terms of overall opinion and thought, especially by the critics, was because he made so many hit songs. And it was almost like he threw so many hit songs out there, he was so good at what he did, mm-hmm. that people turned on him. And I think the same thing happened with Phil Collins in the 1980s, that he made, he had so many hit songs that people eventually turned on him. And I say it now, and, and I, I meant mean it, and I meant it, I always liked Phil Collins. Sure. I was not somebody that said, oh man, not another Phil Collins song, because I credit the guy, as the time wore on in the 80s, his body of music it wasn't the same stuff. Like it wasn't like just a rehash song with the same kind of sound to it. It was pretty unique stuff from one album to the next. And as you can hear from this song, there's a Motown element to it. Which right. you know, he, he would he would incorporate kind of that progressive rock sometimes because that was the Genesis sound, at least early on. But whenever he would go solo, he definitely would would come out with the occasional Motown style. Well, sure, he covered You Can't Hurry Love in the early mm-hmm. 80s, and that just kind of has that same kind of vibe to it. He was a hit maker. I mean, it's, it, you know, there in the 90s for a while, it it became kind of a bad thing to be a polished musician. Right. You know, it's kind of like when the punk 
era hit, if you were too good at your instrument, like we talked about with the police, mm-hmm. that you got criticized. Yeah. And I think that's what was happening to Phil Collins, where in the 80s, you were supposed to be very polished, and you're supposed to write these really nice songs, tight songs, well-crafted songs. And then eventually, when people want to get away from that, now he's the poster boy for all that's wrong. You know, that, that's a good point, because a lot of the same thing happened to Lionel Richie. Absolutely. I was thinking, yeah. that, I was thinking that as well. Yeah. And those two actually did work together at one point, so... Uh, Two Hearts, do you remember the name of the movie that the soundtrack was on? Um, no. It was on a movie, the, off the movie Buster. Okay. He played the lead character. Did not see it. He played the lead character. It's It was based on a true story of a bank robbery or train robbery in the 1960s. Okay. And he played the main character, Buster, who ends up fleeing uh, the United Kingdom and then going down into the Caribbean to hide, basically uh, to avoid extradition. And, uh, you know, he's got to face the reality because his wife doesn't want to leave England and he didn't want to get arrested. So it, it was like kind of a back and forth. It's it's not a terrible movie if, okay. if you ever want to go back and watch it. But the soundtrack was very strong. Um, Groovy Kind of Love, he, mm. he remade. Mm-hmm. That went to number one. That was the uh, first song off, off of that soundtrack. And this was the follow-up that did very well. So that was our number 10 song, Two Hearts by Phil Collins, off of the Buster soundtrack. Number nine, good song from from this particular artist. Kind of burst onto the scene the year before with a, with an up tempo cover version, but now a year later, showing that she's not just a one hit wonder. Another song, okay. The voice is familiar. Uh, I'm going to guess. I may be totally wrong, but is that Tiffany? It is Tiffany. Oh, okay. Very good. So yeah, this is not the uh, the Tiffany album that had you know the the Tommy James. I think we're alone now. Mm-hmm. Just, she did a great job with the cover, but this song was actually written. Um, I don't think it was written originally for her, but she came across it and she begged them to let her do it. And ended up being a top 10 hit for her. So it's a song I don't think I've heard since 1989. Yeah, it's it's a song that doesn't get played enough. I For you know, a slower song, I think this was extremely well done. Yeah. Yeah, the name of the album is Hold an Old Friend's Hand okay. by Tiffany. And this is number nine in our top 40 countdown from February 1st, 1989. Let's go to number eight. This is a debut album, but this is not the first single. This at this point, this particular artist is doing quite well for herself. Okay. I think this is Taylor Dane. Very good. I think I guessed her wrong, like in the '87 episode, but yeah, Taylor Dane. Yeah, this is still off the debut album. Tell it to my heart. 
And so this album's been out for almost a year at this point. And she's made a major name for herself. Mm-hmm. Done, done quite well. She was always known for having such a powerful voice. Right. She's originally from the New York City area. I think she's from Long Island. Okay. And uh, she always credited her singing in bars where she had to sort of extend her voice because of poor sound quality as to why she could belt out uh, lyric, you know, the songs like she could. But she developed a very strong singing voice. And that was the one thing that stood out to me was, man, she can really, she has a great vocal range. So Taylor Dane, you know, I, I don't know that people will bring her up as much as other artists from the Gen X era. I mean, I, she was super popular. Yeah, very much so. Her first two albums, you could put up with almost any artist of the decade in terms of back-to-back albums. Because I know we talked about it in our Don't Call Them Hair Bands episode when we talked about the band Rat. So, you know, you you know, people now talk about, you know, the Motley Crue's and the Poisons of the World, but people forget that Rat was right up there with them. And, you know, here you can see by you know, Taylor Dean's position on the charts, you know, she's right up there with Tiffany and Debbie Gibson, who still get remembered. That's true. And... Another, it, it's funny you say that because it ties right into our number seven artist on our on our top forty countdown. That somebody who kind of got forgotten about because came in was immensely popular and successful with her debut album, and then just kind of went away from the uh, from the music industry. Um, but this is our number seven artist. This is very much New Jack Swing. I, I mean, I think I still hear the song played sometimes, but you say it's a one-hit wonder? Oh, no, no. She was quite popular, yeah. See, I'm, I'm going to guess Karen White. Ah, you got it. All right. Yeah, she was huge. Yeah, The Way You Love Me is the name of this song. And then she came out with the anthem for the high school girls of 1989, which is I'm Not Your Superwoman. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, man. How many times (laughs) did we have to learn? I'm not your superwoman. Come on. I'm I'm 17. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) I'm not asking to make me breakfast. (laughs) Uh, But this, this was a huge song, and... Again, um, just a, she lit up the screen. I when I saw her on MTV for the first time, she just had one of those. Uh, she kind of has a wow factor to her. Mm-hmm. Sure. She just sometimes you see an artist, and it could be anybody from you know Madonna to Michael Jackson. But when you watch them perform, it's like your eyes are you like you can't take your eyes off of what they're doing. And I remember seeing this video for the very first time. I'm like, man, I can't take my eyes off her. She, she was uh, kind of that magnetic personality. But somebody that isn't necessarily mentioned among all the names you just mentioned. Right. And after this, shortly after this, she ends up becoming, I can't remember if it's Mrs. Jimmy Jam or Mrs. Terry Lewis, but she okay. ended up marrying one of them. Okay. Because they, they produced this album for her. And she ends up, um, she did have a, a little bit of a comeback album in the early 90s, but then she kind of drifted away from the music scene. So, right. But Karen White. With our number seven song, The Way You Love Me, 
her debut album, Karen White. And let's go now to number six. And this is one of the biggest albums of the entire decade. It's similar like Joe Elliott chime in there and sing a little bit. Of course, this is Def Leppard. Yes. Armageddon. It. And the, the album Hysteria. Mm-hmm. Think about how long the album been out at this point. Well, it was released in 87. And not in the end of 87. It was released like the middle summer, of 87. Summer 87. This, to me, the album Hysteria kind of had two lives to it. Right, you had the mm-hmm. initial release, sure, and then it's you know they, they had two or three song releases. The song "Hysteria" is maybe my favorite off of this album. Still haven't grown tired of it. And then it, there's about a four or five month lull, yeah. And then all of a sudden, "Pour Some Sugar on Me" comes out, right. and it's like the album is seen again for the very first time. Yep, and it just blows up again. And I think after "Pour Some Sugar on Me." This might have been the third single after that, which would have put it at, like, the sixth single off the album release. I mean, at this point, it had been around for more than two years. I think I think uh, they released Rocket before this one. Mm-hmm. So... Because Love Bites still has to come out Love yet, Love Bites still has to come out. I think... I don't know. I'd have to look up the actual release of things. But, yeah, it was... You're right. There, there was two lives to this album. You know, they they come out with, with women initially, and I got to admit, I was a little disappointed when they came out with that. I was such a big Def Leppard fan coming off of Pyromania, I couldn't wait for the release. And I right. saw the video for for women, and I was like, okay, it's all right, but it, it didn't wow me. And then they came out with Animal, and I, all right, I'm 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 all on board with that. And then you know, Hysteria, and yes, I'm really into it. I you know, I bought the album early on, mm-hmm. and. Then she said it, it seemed to go away, and then now we're in, in the second wave where you know we're going on a solid two years. You bought me this cassette for my birthday, did I? I? Okay, I think so. Okay, yeah, because I what a nice brother it was, <laughs> and I think it was the summer of '88. Okay, was when you got it, and it was right before Pour Some Sugar because you're like, hey, you know, this was a good album, and then you got me the cassette tape, and then Pour Some Sugar on Me comes out. And it's like, hey, it's like it's like I got a popular tape again. <laughs> That's right. But it was, um, yeah, like I said, it was, this album had a long run. I think at by the end of the decade, it was, oh, probably top 10 in terms of album sales for the entire decade. Mm. And it continues to sell to this day. It's one of the highest selling albums of all time. And that's Hysteria by Def Leppard and our number six song, Armageddon It. Now we finally cracked the top five, Sean. And this is where... You're starting to see some a little bit more of that diversity come in. One of the song, one of the types that we hadn't really heard on this countdown, which was, even though it was all over the place, was rap music. I was thinking that same thing. So, what better way to kick off? Let's do it with one of the all-time great rap songs in music history, and one of the great all-time samples in history with that drum so, uh, sample.
ride for my money. So on the weekend comes, I go get live with the honey. Rolling down the street, I saw this girl when she was pumping. I winked my eyes, got into the ride, went to a club with jumping. Of course, we're talking about the legendary and late Tone Lope with a wild thing. Yeah. And for those of you who don't recognize the Tom Tom drums there, that's sampled right from Van Halen's Jamie's Crying. That's correct. And it was put together by a group, two brothers called the Dust Brothers. And they did a lot of the sampling for Tone Loke, Young MC. Uh, you know, they were very big in the music scene, particularly in the late 80s, early 90s. Back when you, you didn't pay people, you didn't even mention them when you, when you came out with the recording. And this was one of the lawsuits that happened. Right. And I, you know, there are many rap artists that I have enjoyed more over time. Like, you and I were big Run DMC fans, mm-hmm. Beastie Boys, LL Cool J. Uh, but this one song m- might be my favorite rap song of all time. It's up there. It's got to be. It's, it's way up there. Um, but I just, when this song came out, it was, yeah, it was kind of like, you know, you had mentioned before about hearing Jamie's crying for mm-hmm. the first time. I, you know, it's like this is a, this is a head snapper for me. Oh, this is this is when I was really still into hip hop and still into rap, and as you can hear, I think part of the reason why I liked it and why it was popular at the time was it is a mixture, mm-hmm. you know. So it it still is kind of mixing uh, some rock elements with it. You know, there's a sample from Van Halen. You know, later on, um, you know, with uh, Funky Cold Medina, he samples Foreigner. Right, and so. It, you're you're kind of like playing off both crowds with this, you know. We're you know still not having like the defined genres where you could like a whole bunch of things. I, I remember when this was released, I saw it on MTV for the first time, and I think I had to go out and get it right away. You had the CD, oh, yeah. I remember you gave early, it to me early on. I went out and got it. Yeah, you ended up giving the CD to me because you're like, ah, oh, you know, you're collecting music for your DJ business. Here's <laughs> yeah. a CD. Um, but yeah, we were we were huge Tone Look fans, and and the video is so memorable. But it was shot for nothing. Yeah. Like, literally, that this part of the story is that uh, Tone Loke, they had no money, and yet they somehow creatively came up with this video, and I think they did it for, what, a couple thousand dollars? Oh, probably. And it's it's one of the better-made videos of the year. Yeah. Certainly, uh, you know, he goes in with a big budget of Funky Colmadina, which I think is a hilarious video. But, you know, Wild Thing is the one that everybody remembers. Mm-hmm. Sure. So that was our number five song. So a good start to the top five. Let's go to number four. One of my favorite albums of the year. Another mi- very memorable video. Well, of course, this is Bon Jovi with Born to Be My Baby. And, you know, it's it's interesting. And I think you had mentioned previously that this is your favorite Bon Jovi song. Yes, it yeah. is. And I I think I, I read somewhere where, you know, John originally wrote this as a ballad. And he I was... see it what they saw the lyrics. They, he was kind of convinced to, to, you know, make it into a rock song, you know, 
whether it was you know, the, the producer or the rest of the guys in the band. And I don't think this one goes to number one. I think it. Right. I think it stalls pretty much. What are we at? Four or three? Right. We're now, at three. number four. Yeah. And I think he's he's always been a little bitter because he said if I'd been allowed to make it as a ballad, it would have been yet another number one off that album. But then I'll be there for you, which was a ballad. Yeah. Which was the next song off the album that does go to number one. So I don't know if this one is a ballad and it goes to number one. Does the other ballad go to number? Who knows? I. I'm glad they kept it the way it was. I, I like the song. It, you know, Scott's right. It's a very memorable video where you see them during the recording process in the studio. That's right. Well, Richie turns to John and said, take it from the top. <laughs> All right, take it from the top. Born to be my baby, Bon Jovi. The album is New Jersey. And that was our number four song from February 1st, 1989. Our number three song, the highest charting song by this particular band. We've talked about them before in our previous episodes. Talked about them in Don't Call Them Hair Bands. Talked about our favorite albums of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Of course, we're talking White Lion, When the Children Cry, with Vito Brada playing the guitar. Like Tramp putting all that passion into his voice. I'm just still mesmerized by the guitar. Well, and, and this is a song that I I probably don't listen to a whole lot anymore. You know, I'll go back and I'll listen to this album Pride. It's oftentimes I'll skip over this song just because it got it got played so much. It did. That being said, if I do listen to it, I'm listening to it for Vito's guitar. And Mike Tramp has commented before that after Vito essentially walked away from the from the music industry, and people tried to come in, and they wouldn't even try to play previous songs because they're like, "Are you kidding me? You're going to try and get me to play that? That's too hard." Right. The the, the complexity of Vito's guitar playing is still stands out to this day. He's, in my opinion one of the top guitarists in rock music history. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. And this was their most successful song. When the Children Cry, and the album, as Sean said, is Pride. And that is our number three song. Now we're down to the top two. Well, this one isn't number one this particular week, Sean, but it does end up getting to number one. And I know you're going to certainly enjoy this because you are a big fan of this artist. So when back in the day, and this is of course Paula Abdul was straight up. I remember getting mocked for like a Paula Abdul, and I was always like, I could care less. I like Paula Abdul, and you know I said on one of our previous episodes, you know she was I think at least twice it, it, during her lifetime America's sweetheart. Yes. You know both when she's popular here in the late '80s, early '90s as, as a singer. And then when she comes back and she is on um, 
<laughs> what's the name of the show? The uh, the talent show that I'm drawing a blank on. American Idol. American Idol, yeah. I mean, she's a judge in American Idol. And, you know, once again, she's reintroduced to the public. And you're like, what, what, a, what a sweetheart that Paula Abdul. And again, this, this was an album that almost never came to popularity. That it wasn't until they shot this music video. This wasn't the first song to be released. The, um, the first single was, was it called Knocked Out? Oh, okay. And that was the, that was the first song that was released, and it it didn't do well. They ended up after the mu- the album started to get some traction and become more popular. They end up re releasing it at the end of the album's run, and then it does become popular and ends up getting into the top twenty. Yeah, because I remember a video for that. Sure, but when it first came out, it did it did not do very well at all. So what caused her to to get some momentum? Well, a lot of people base it around the music video. They they did the video. She had struck up a friendship. She was dating Arsenio Hall. Right. Arsenio was just coming off the movie um, uh, Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. He had just started his talk show. So Arsenio Hall was a face. And then when they do the music video, and he's got a couple of cameo scenes in there, that plus her dancing ability, mm-hmm. I, I think when they did... The first song release, they didn't focus on her ability to dance. So then when they come out and do straight up, it's like, okay, you're a former Laker girl, you're a choreographer. And she's like, I'm going to go out there and and show people I can dance. And I think that's what really drew people in was watching an artist with that much dancing skill and ability. I think that's what got it going. Okay, that makes sense because she was a big deal. And the album is Forever Your Girl, which was the next single to get released off of this album. And that one ended up going to number one as well. Well, Sean, what could have possibly be keeping Paula Abdul out of the number one spot? Is it uh, an all-timer? Well, you know, what's interesting to me is there's there's such a story around this particular song in that I think this may be the... um, one of the few number one songs in the country that by the time it hits number one, the band's not even together. Oh, really? Yes. Mm. So I'm going to play this song for you. The sheriff. That is correct. Mm-hmm. The sheriff. Another ballad. Canadian rock band. This song was first released, I believe, in 1983, and did nothing. Okay. All right. The band at that point they could not get success. So they go their separate ways. They disband. Somehow, somebody in a radio station gets a hold of this, the single, and they start playing it. Well, all of a sudden, I, I, I think it might be, I don't know, I'm going to say like Tampa. And all of a sudden, it's the most requested song. And the song blows up, gets this whole entire new life, and skyrockets 
to become the number one song in America, and the band is done. They're not even speaking to each other at this point anymore. They've been disbanded for, I think, three or four years. Okay. And this song comes out of nowhere to hit number one on the charts. I I don't know if that's ever been done before or since. Hmm. That, that is pretty amazing. Yeah, and I, once again, your, your uh, senior year, that was the year of the ballads, it seems. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I knew... I knew that there was a band called Sheriff that had this song. Yeah. That was about all I knew. Yeah, but, uh, you know, and there were a few bands that, that would re-release songs from the beginning of the decade to the end of the decade. Um, Melt With You by Modern English, that was re-released at the end of the decade. And there were, there were a few that would try it occasionally, and this was one of them, although the band had nothing to do with it. This was completely done by some radio DJ in a you know in a city in the United States right right oh that's that that's a great story so that is the number one song in America and I don't know I think there's a little bit of a symmetry there between this countdown and your 1987 countdown because do you remember what your number one song was in 87 uh, yeah it was uh, Billy ba- Bader and the Beaters or Billy Bear and the Beaters Bear and the Beaters yeah. yeah at this moment at this moment the uh the, and the family tie song and it was kind of you know a guy that i would say had a more happening career probably 10 years before right that song came out and then all of a sudden out of nowhere he just skyrockets to number one and that's kind of what i remember about this this song with sheriff yeah and you know that's i, I like that I, I like i actually think that they you know your countdown was ended up really strong i mean as you know Hopefully, folks have listened to both episodes. You know, number forty through twenty-one. I, there, there were some good songs on there, and um, but I didn't remember a lot of those. But from twenty to number one, these are these are, these are you know good songs. I mean, songs that that I remember really liking at the time. And um, I think that just goes to show in the Gen X era that you can almost randomly pick any week uh, throughout the era and probably have some major hits on there like all-time songs. oh sure yeah absolutely and and i considered going down you know the the various months in 1989 and i said at the beginning of the broadcast i had mentioned why i decided to go with this particular year or this month because there's a lot of unpublished music that's not out there you know that you can't get you know it said just because was anita baker's mm-hmm. song at number 40 and i was just you know surprised that there's a lot of unpublished songs that you can no longer get anymore because either the band doesn't exist or that you know there could be contractual reasons right. for with with music so I, I found that to be uh you know kind of surprising for for this particular time period in, in 1989 although i'll say there's there's one artist that surprised me that he was not on your list or, or, or in this countdown at all and that's richard marks True, although his album hadn't been released yet. Okay, all right, that makes sense. Because if you go into the, I think right after this, his, I forget the name of the album, but it is released, and by May, by May, June, he's got a song in the top 20. Yeah, because it just seems to me, you know, without diving into it and, and knowing a lot of details, it's, yeah, he was like one of the biggest artists of 89. I think that album was called Repeat Offender, Okay, if, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, but that, that one had... Uh, some huge, huge hits also uh, coming out, due to come out that mm-hmm. year. 
So, all right, that was the top 40 list from February 1st, 1989. That's my list, and I'm sticking to it. So I hope you enjoyed it as well as I did going back and, and pulling those songs up. You can listen to the list, 1 through 40, if you go into Spotify, and if you type in February 1, 1989, top 40, you can view this list and listen to it on spotify so it's out there i hope you enjoy okay great all right so that's going to wrap up this episode and of course we're going to you know get episode uh, number 28 next and this can be me and so um i was trying to think about a, a topic that we you know could discuss and we haven't done movies for a little while scott so i, I decided all right but people seem to like the music and i thought all right here's a thought let's go to the late 90s Okay. We're going to do an Adam Sandler movie. There's a lot of music from the 80s, and that's, of course, The Wedding Singer. Nice. So it, it, I just remember at the time being hit with nostalgia, still in the Gen X era, as I'm thinking, looking back uh, at, at you know, the time that they're spoofing. So let's do a deep dive into The Wedding Singer. We're going to do both the music and we're going to talk about the movie itself. Okay. Yeah, that should be a nice nice combination of the two. That That should be a lot of fun. As you said, Sandler, Drew Barrymore mm-hmm. is in that. And, you know, usually Adam's wonderful cast of characters that seem to make it from one movie to the next. But that should be a lot of fun to do. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd, um, hopefully our listeners look forward to it. And, uh, you know, uh, between now and then, go ahead and watch the movie and brush up on it. And um, we're going to we're gonna go relive some of the glory days. So we're going to have America's sweetheart, Paula Abdul, take us out today. So once again, we want to thank everybody for tuning in to the Gen X Playback Show. Tell a friend. Hopefully you can uh, find everything that we're talking about uh, from one week to the next. We try and keep it a little bit diverse, but uh, this was one that I think will hit our wheelhouse with our fan base. And tell a friend, have them tune in, and hopefully they can uh, be a part of the Gen X Playback Show as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, come share in some of the memories. And, you know, this was Scott's senior year, and maybe it was your senior year. And hopefully it takes you back uh, where you're out there on the dance floor. All right. So, uh, again, thank you for listening to our Top 40 Countdown from February 1, 1989. We'll talk to you next week when we talk about the movie The Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. And that's going to be Sean's topic. So thanks again for listening to our show. We really appreciate it. We are the Brothers High. I am Scott. And I'm Sean. And we'll talk to you next time. See ya.